Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com if you have not already done so. Make sure you are following us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, uh, just to name a few of the platforms. And you'll find us at that same username, at Radio Islam USA. Uh, Radio Islam family, for those of you who are in the Chicagoland area, this past weekend, Sound Vision sponsored the Save the Uyghur Benefit Dinner, where almost $200,000 was raised for the Save Uyghur campaign. You can get more info about that campaign at saveuyghur.org. That's save, U-I-G-H-U-R.org. Now, one of the featured speakers and awardees at the dinner was Uyghur activist Aidan Anwar, who gave an abridged presentation on the plight of the Uyghur people in China, which opened a lot of eyes in the room. And we are happy to have her joining us in studio. Welcome to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. So um, you gave a, a presentation uh, this past Saturday. What were some of the things that maybe that you didn't get to convey uh, that you could tell those who are in attendance or those who maybe who were not in attendance uh, what, what they need to know about the humanitarian crisis that's going on right now? So my main goal was to um, first touch on, you know, I mean, obviously the main the main goal was to touch on the current situation in occupied East Turkestan um, and talk about the ways that China is currently cracking down on the Uyghur uh, and Turkic populations living there, specifically with the focus on the concentration camps. And um, I wanted to also touch briefly on the history so that part is not completely overlooked and forgotten because I want people to also realize that this, the Uyghurs and other Turkey people living there have, you know, centuries of history. Um, we've lived with um, independence before. We've have, uh, you know, been the center of um, very prominent civilizations and been, you know, key points of like the Silk Road and um particularly within the Islamic community, like a lot of our scholars and a lot of uh, history was uh, kind of brought out through these, through a lot of these major towns and major um, hubs of culture and history. So I wanted to briefly touch on that. Um, and then later on, I wanted to get into the depth of how, and to show like how horrific this whole situation is. Because I think when we see what's happening or when we read about this stuff on in the media it's one thing it's another thing when we kind of get accounts of real people who've lived there who've, who've talked about you know their situation in a concentration camp or in a prison or what they've seen on the streets or what they've how, how they feel when they go out on the street and there's mass surveillance states um you know this technology that's surveilling them so i wanted to touch a lot on like personal stories in my presentation mm -hmm. um alhamdulillah i think I, I i didn't get to touch on it too much because also we had one of the concentration camp survivors at the event, Mihrigal Tursun, who was able to give testimony on her experiences. So I just, I let her, I wanted her to give her story and I, I decided to focus more on like the facts and to really just shed light on like how extensive this oppression is and, and the fact that this oppression has been ongoing. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new thing. It's not a, the concentration camp isn't a complete new thing. It's, you know, it's, it's been a, it's kind of like the symbol of what has come to right at this point because this oppression is part of an ongoing occupation and now the concentration camps is now an open sign of trying to eradicate 
the Uyghurs, um, both physically and culturally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let me ask a really superficial question. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not superficial uh, because they say that uh, generally the, the, the most beautiful sound to anyone is the sound of their own name. Yeah. So when we when I hear I hear these different pronunciations and I know a lot of them a lot of them I think are anglicized <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. Um, Uyghur. Yeah. Uh, but I hear when I hear you say it and I hear other I hear Uyghur. Yeah. Is, that, is that correct? Uyghur. Yeah, so it's like there's like a ra, there's like a ra sound. The, uh-huh. It's like a G. It's spelled U Y G H U R. So the G H makes a ra noise. Yeah. I think that when you try to do oi and then G H sound together, it makes it really hard for people to say. Yeah. So I, I suggest people if they can't say that, then at least say like Uyghur, and it's a little bit closer. Uyghur sounds like a little bit. It's a really off, and yeah. I think it's a pronunciation that was actually introduced by by uh, by Chinese by the Chinese. So and then everyone else kind of just picked up on it, and like that's how everyone you know is pronouncing it now mm-hmm. um honestly a lot of us kind of cringe when you hear the, the pronunciation Uyghur but we're not going to be too pressed on making that an issue too much of an issue um but yeah I would when I pronounce it it's Uyghur, Uyghur. um but one thing I would like to mention is that actually that term the term Uyghur is actually a relatively new term that was employed like um it was uh, brought about in the 1900s but before that Uyghurs actually referred to themselves as Musliman or Turkey uh, mm. Or like like Turk basically, right. um, so that's how people were known as. Um, and then with time, you think there was more like with it with the creation of the term Uyghur that was um, kind of differentiating the different um, Turkic ethnic groups within East Turkestan. Um, so you know, Uyghur is not hasn't been a term that has been used like throughout history. Okay. So it's, it's a relatively just, new, yeah. newer term. But yeah, but in terms of pronunciation, it is like Uyghur. But okay. yeah. Well, I think that's important, and that's <laughs> yeah. what I, say. I don't want. To, I don't. It's not superficial at all. Um, no, it's an important question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, as as a as a younger activist, uh, and I don't generally like to look at age necessarily, yeah. but I think uh, sometimes it has its merits, um, just in terms of the, the differences in communication. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having a conversation offline. We're listening to some uh, comments uh, from. Uh, Brother Abdul Malik, and he was talking about how uh, once the older folks came on the Facebook, all the younger people, you know, left. <laughs> but yeah. um, but seeing as how social media has a such a uh, such a power in being able to uh, disseminate information and, and organize folks, um, as a as a younger activist, how have you employed the, the you know these communication uh, platforms? Uh, to you know, to get the to get the word out and, yeah. and, and inform people. Yeah. So in the beginning, my social media um, was just like any other any other person's social media, where you kind of just posted. Like my Twitter was like I posted my thoughts, and you know it was kind of like one of those. I don't want to say pointless Twitter pages, but you know, like, <laughs> but you just kind of like use Twitter as like a way to just like retweet funny things and stuff like that. Or Facebook was also kind of the same thing where, well, not really. I wasn't really active on Facebook too. Um, my Instagram, I, I keep, I usually keep private for more because I, I do want like a platform where I can post like my own photos and stuff. But in terms of my Facebook and Twitter, um, at one point, I, th- I don't know exactly when I started. I don't remember exactly when I started to make my platform solely on the Uyghur issue, but I th- it was definitely, um, I started definitely making more of a thing um, like beginning of college because mm-hmm. that's when I was started to get more active in raising awareness about what was happening. And I realized like when we go on Facebook, 
first of all, like not many, well, in general, not many people have been knowing about what's been happening to the yeah. Uyghur people, even before the concentration camps have co- been coming about. And that was, the concentration camps is, you know, um, was it started being extensively built in t- 2016. So that's like uh, a little less than three years ago, right. right? And so, but before that, you know, we we still we still had economic, I mean, sorry, a systematic uh, oppression and and you know been undergoing occupation and having clear forms of genocide taking place within, like whether it be in open or in secret in the prisons. So um, that's what. And then I think uh, with time, I started being more active with like going to protests, posting these protests. Of like posting live, record, like sorry, live broadcasts of the protests, giving speeches, um, writing a few op-eds and just sharing it. And then with time, I there started to get more following, like more followers. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm gonna start like shifting. It naturally, I didn't really make the conscious decision to shift it to that kind of platform, but it just naturally became that way. So my Twitter also like all I cared about at that moment was just sharing, like news and sharing things what was happening. And um, I think with time, especially like with a couple of things that I've like if for an op-ed for example if I shared that like I would get more followers um, because people would be reading these headlines and being like whoa like I've never heard of this before right yeah. um, so I think in August 2017 I published an op-ed with TRT World about why Uyghurs are not allowed to embark on hedge right because it was um, there was the hedge season was coming up and I wanted to shed light on the fact that like we talk about millions of Uyghurs I mean sorry millions of Muslims are going on this pilgrimage but there's like one particular population that's completely barred from going on something like this right mm-hmm. so I wrote the subhead and i remember getting a lot of followers from then um the most recent one was like the now this video that got really viral That's and that like millions yeah so um yeah i estimate there's like around 70 million views worldwide so yeah. throughout different platforms like facebook twitter uh youtube instagram uh whatsapp even i can't really tell how many views are on whatsapp but i heard like yeah. you know a lot of people downloaded and shared it with their groups um, let me ask this how how did that come about uh, so then now this video, um, I, I actually have, um, I had a connection with someone I know, uh, her name is Isra Chakr, um, and she's a, a Syrian-American civil rights activist based in D.C., and she posted on her Instagram story saying, like, does anyone know um, someone who can speak on the China, on China's camps? And a lot of my friends, and I had one particular f- connection in L.A., mm-hmm. who, subhanAllah, like, you know how with the small world, like, connections really make a big difference, yeah. you know, texted my name to her, and a lot of people were also saying my name, and then she reached out to me saying, I have a really big media opportunity, you know, I'm going to connect you with someone at Now This, and they're going to reach out to you, and um, so you can, uh, I guess, share this story. So um, I went in October. Um, it took some time for the video to be produced. It took around two months, but... Um, yeah, that, that's how it happened. So it, you know, mm. yeah, they called me over, and then I, I had no idea that it would get this viral. Like, I was like, I looked at now this, and I was like, wow, it's a really big platform. Like, their average, their videos get like at least a million views. I was like, okay, maybe at least a million views. But even that is like huge within the oil community. Like, we've never had. I don't think we've had ever had like a single video that has gotten even like over more than a million views to be honest so when i started to when that video was released and i started to see like within the first day there was like i don't remember exactly how many were the first day but i remember seeing three million within the first like three days Mm -hmm. and i was like wow like this is really gaining traction and then more and then i started to see public figures sharing it even activists like linda sarsour who like even mentioned herself like like how horrific is this like so basically she's also you know showing that she also didn't really know much about it and i don't we don't blame anyone right this is just something that's been hidden um by the chinese media and um china's making really really stringent like stringent efforts to really just 
block off everything about what is happening to us. Um, and then I remember seeing like these tweets where someone, people would re quote retweet the, now this video, and then they would share it. So I remember seeing one tweet that got like 126,000 retweets. And so just with time, it got more and more viral, alhamdulillah. Um, alhamdulillah. Yeah, and then and I heard it also got translated into different languages, which is oh, really? also, yeah, because people were like, this, this needs to reach different international platforms. Um, and so I saw videos that were translated into um, Turkish, it was translated to Urdu, Arabic, um, Malay, um, amongst other languages as well. Mm -hmm. So, Are there any other reasons that you think beyond the Chinese propaganda mm -hmm. uh, that folks, particularly in the United States, are, have been unaware? Um, yes. So. I think the biggest one, so like when I think of this question, um, well, I think that the Uyghur like population itself, like so the ethnicity, like yeah. even when I would introduce myself to other people and they're like, okay, what is your ethnicity? I was and, okay. and I, and oh, you were going to ask a question similar to that, or about that? No, just about um, this, you know, when it's, when it comes to, you know, phenotypical distinctions, right, right. right people mm -hmm. being able to look at you and go, oh yeah, you're from here. Yeah. You're like, yeah. You're, like if you see Somalis. You, 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 they, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a, yeah, you, a general look. Exactly, go, exactly. You know. Yeah, so, yeah, so typically when they look at me, like, okay, I don't think I've ever had someone correctly guess, like, on the spot, like, you're Uyghur. Yeah. Um, but, like, when people have looked at me, they're like, oh, they would guess, like, okay, sometimes I get really crazy guesses, like, I'm <laughs> Egyptian or, like, Moroccan or, um, but, but then sometimes they'll say stuff like Afghan, so like Central Asia or like Central Asian. Sometimes they'll say Uzbek, which is very, very close. Yeah. Like it's pretty much like the same thing, but like slightly different. But it, in a way, so they would get close, but they would never actually pinpoint the Uyghur ethnicity because a lot of times they haven't even heard of it. Right. Um, sometimes I would get Turkish because my name is like a, a name that's also used in Turkey, Aydin. Um, but like I do have like, I do have like, eyes that are kind of look that kind of look asian so it's like they would get confused or be like wait are you they would, or they think i'm mixed like half you know half asian half like white or something yeah or like half something else like half arab um so yeah um but what was i saying oh about nobody's really generally got oh yeah, yeah yeah so like even when i would say my ethnicity like people would just be like what like what's that and i would you know that's when i would start going on my five to ten minute rant about like just kind of giving a quick history lesson and kind of just describing like who we are, where we come from, um, and the fact that like I always I would always say like I'm, we're from East Turkestan. It's a nation under the occupation of China, and I always emphasize it's like under the occupation of China right. because a lot of people think we're like Chinese Muslims. Like that's con that's what we're commonly referred to. Like oh the Chinese Muslims are being oppressed. I'm like no, mm -hmm. like we reject that. You say, like we are not Chinese, like our culture, our linguist, like our language, everything about us are just it's not even remotely close to the to the Chinese culture. But you could argue, yeah, yeah, we're being forced to be Chinese un by nationality because we're under occupation. But still, we reject that because we've been under occupation. So that's one thing we want to emphasize to people is like to stop calling us Chinese Muslims because then it feeds, people then think. Like Hui Muslim, like so right now Hui Muslims are also facing oppression by the Chinese government as well in the sense that like their mosques are being demolished, they're also facing some religious restrictions, but they're not being rounded up into uh, concentration, ca concentration camps. Right. You know, they're not, they're not, there isn't this a territorial issue that they're facing, uh, this territorial dispute because they're not facing under occupation. So a lot of times when we keep saying Chinese Muslims, people are literally thinking like you know ethnic Han Muslims, right. and that's not who we are. So. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, and it, it, it negates a 
the, that history of uh, of occupation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a very exactly. passive exactly. type of uh, description. Yeah, so even even people people even say like you know we'll call us an ethnic minority, mm -hmm. but even that is like considered offensive for us because. Like within our homeland, we've we for the longest time we weren't ethnic minority. We were the majority in our own homeland, right? That's kind of like calling Palestinians an ethnic minority within Palestine. Mm. Like if you think about what that what the how that feels and how what that would mean, mm. right? Um, so we're not until until recently. I think recently now we're starting to slowly become an ethnic minority. I mean, an actual minority be, within our homeland because of uh, Han Chinese like mig migration and the fact that literally people are being wiped off. Um, from this earth because they're being killed or tortured to death in these camps or prisons or just being or just simply disappearing mm -hmm. um, Right now they have you know accounts of towns and villages that have been basically almost wiped out like you did there It's eerily silent because there's no one and there's no one walking through the streets like where have all the people gone, right? So um, You know even calling us an ethnic minority like sometimes when you know um, There's like media campaigns or people trying to raise awareness. They're like oh, there's another minority in China like I, I try to tell people to avoid using that term because right. it kind of like feeds into the the kind of the colonial narratives like oh they're the ethnic minority within china like poor yeah, minorities yeah. you know but like no it's like we're a group of people that have been under occupation we've we're living under an occupation and um my colonists, since 49 since no, yeah 1949 most recently um but you know so and china will then say like is there one of our 56 recognized ethnic minorities and you know then by calling us ethnic minority it kind of is are acknowledging the fact that we are part of china you know yeah. like and yes. then give some some legitimacy to the hierarchy exactly um, yeah exactly but what i also find really interesting here is that um the inverse is not true to say that there are muslims in china mm -hmm. but then to turn it around and say chinese muslims yeah you know it, it's a very you know, these are two totally different mm. yeah, uh, realities. Exactly. But, but, but I appreciate hearing you say that because um, I know I've been in conversations where we talk about trying to bring awareness to the issue and we go Chinese Muslims, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, alhamdulillah for the intent, but if we want to really do justice yeah. to bringing awareness, then we got to make sure that we're using the, the right language. Exactly. Uh, and I would also like to you know point out that it's not just Uyghur Muslims who are being subject to this oppression, but it's also other Turkic groups, uh, Turkic ethnic groups living there as well. And that's something I want to like, you know, I've been trying to, a lot of us have been trying to change the narrative where it's like, stop just calling it Uyghurs because then we're excluding the Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, the, the, you know, the Uzbeks, the, um, there's even like Farsi speaking Tajiks who live there who are also being subject to the mass surveillance state who are being rounded up into camps. Like, it's not just us. Yes, the majority of it are Uyghur people, but there's also other Turkic people. So whenever I talk about this, I'm always, I always make, try to make sure to say, you know, there are, um, you know, let's say, like two to three million Uyghurs and other Turkic people in these concentration camps. And I, um, yes, there are a lot of the majority of them are Muslims, but there are some, like we, we also sometimes would like to avoid constantly saying just Muslim, the fact that right. it's a Muslim issue, because like there are like Uyghurs who are not, uh, let's say religious per se, who would consider themselves not Muslim, who are also being sent to the camps. Um, because this, I would like to emphasize, this is mainly an ethnicity issue and that the fact that religion is being used as an excuse to and to put us into these camps and say that we are, China is claiming that we are putting these people into camps to crack down on Islamic extremism. Because if this was purely a Muslim issue, mm. then we would also see Hui Muslims, like Chinese Muslims, being mm. sent to the camps as well. But we don't see that. 
we see a very particular group from a very particular area of of um, a, a very you know from from an occupied region being sent to the camp. So this is a territorial issue, an ethnicity issue, and religion is definitely part of it, but it's not the main reason. It's not like okay, they're Muslim, they're being sent to camps because if that was the case, we'd see all the Muslims in China undergoing the same. Is is ethnicity and religion? Are these the things, I mean, because we obviously realize that these things are being targeted. Right. But is it for the purpose of acquiring the natural resources mm-hmm. uh, of the uh, East Turkestan uh, region? You know, they're yeah. huge gas depo- uh, natural gas uh, deposits yeah. and, and, and other resources yeah. there. Is that the, the math that we're looking at yes, here? Yes, I would definitely say so because it's it's – um, I touched I, t- I touched on this in the presentation on Saturday, um, and I talked about how you know like for example forty percent of China's coal comes from the East Turkestan region. It's really rich in natural resources, very rich in crude, in um, in coal, like I said, and other very uh, valuable materials. Um, they say that even what is it? It's either one fifth or one sixth. I'm forgetting. But one fifth or one sixth of the world's ketchup comes from our region too, yeah. right? Like Heinz is a huge; it operates in East Turkestan. Um, but also, just the land itself is so is so vast. It's 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 around like two and a half the size of California, mm-hmm. and that kind of if you imagine that how big that is, like for for China's population, like with China's population exceeds over a billion people. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of space is so valuable for them, where they you know people can spread out. They that's why they incentivize a lot of people to migrate there, um, and so. So it's a vast region, and um, so I would say it's a largely a territorial issue. And also, the One Belt One Road Initiative, um, that is a mul- that was a multi is a multi trillion dollar initiative uh, launched by the Chinese government in two thousand thirteen to essentially create like a, a modern day, they call it like a Silk Road uh, route, where basically you they would go through different parts of the world, like Central Asia, uh, Africa. Now they're starting to go to Europe. Um, and other other parts of the world, but basically they would, this would be a, a way to connect railroad, railroad, gas line pipes, and resources to other parts of the world. And this is a way for China to um, essentially make make themselves a large economic power um, by making smaller governments, um, you know, be part of this initiative. And essentially, like China would basically offer these really big, great, lo- like big, really huge loans to them, um, yeah. with the assumption saying that like it'll making it easier for them to pay it off of it. Telling these governments that it's going to be good for their economy, that they are going to eventually, they're, that they're overall going to benefit from this great initiative, um, and this is a way to promote, you know, economic ties with China. Um, so, the East Turkestan region itself is is a, a huge component of, of, like a lot of the railroads, a lot of this initiative goes through that region. So, without East Turkestan and without, without the resources, mm-hmm. a lot of this, I would say, a lot of this, um, a lot of this uh, project would be really like not as strong um and by the way i want to make i forgot to make a quick disclaimer about the fact that east turkestan you people may have heard of it as xinjiang um, and that is the name that china has employed and they renamed the land to xinjiang which actually means new territory Mm -hmm. um and so we also avoid using the term xinjiang because that it's that name itself implies like a colonial narrative we consider that offensive um and it's not it's not the true name and then when by by calling it xinjiang i think a lot of people 
if they don't know the meaning of it, they just think, oh, yeah, we've always been a part of China. It's just it's just a province of China. Mm-hmm. And it's China. The official name is actually the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which in that name itself implies a lot of irony because, number one, you know, right now there's China's making a very clear attempt to wipe out anything that makes up who the Uyghurs are, whether it be culturally, linguistically, religiously. Um, so it's not, they're wiping out everything that makes us distinctly Uyghur. Mm. Um, autonomous, uh, autonomy, that is not existing at all. Um, it's very clear with with what we see with the concentration camps, the mass surveillance state, the complete banning of religion. Um, there's essentially no freedoms to the point where you're surveilled in your own home by like Han government civilians. Like, was this a part of your, pres- I think it was a part of your of your presentation mm-hmm. um, where it says that all of the um, Uyghur mm-hmm. have to download a uh, spyware or something like that yeah. on their mobile phone. Yeah, yeah, so that's one thing that they would have to do is they would, uh, well, first they would like have their phones confiscated by officials and then they come up with a more, uh, they would be confiscated and then checked by the officials. Like they would literally go through your phone, check all your apps, check all your material to see if there's anything quote unquote suspicious or suggestive of like terrorist uh, inclinations. So if, let's say you have like a picture of like if you, you know how on like WhatsApp we get sent like a bunch of like thing. Let's say like a, there's a little girl making dua, right? Or like yeah. or on Eid we get like sent little things like Eid Mubarak or or even like a Quran recitation that's on your phone or a lecture that you're listening to. Like they would basically scan your phone for anything like that. Even saying, finding a message that says, Assalamu alaikum, that is enough for you to be uh, subject to intense interrogations, detainment, and like sent to the concentration camp. So at first they would confiscate these phones. They still do, mm-hmm. but they came up with a more efficient way of basically uh, checking these phones, which is they would, they would require everyone to download an app on their phone that basically would... Uh, they would basically kind of screen through your phone to make sure to kind of see what materials on your phone. So it would it would basically detect any quote unquote again like material that is that seems slightly quote unquote suspicious, um, or that is that is worthy of basically sending someone to a camp or prison. And it doesn't take much at all no. from saying assalamu alaikum in public. No, I um, mean well. It's it's scary because like this is what this is you know our religion Islam has been such an deeply embedded part of our Uyghur identity like even if someone doesn't consider themselves super religious right like it's just embedded in our in, in our culture like everyone still says Assalamu alaikum everyone still says Inshallah or Khudayim Bursa that's the Uyghur way of saying it or like um, you know everyone a lot of our culture we still have nikahs we still have janazas we still have you know like I'm talking about for people who who may not be as practicing who don't mm-hmm. don't consider themselves as practicing like they these are embedded parts of our culture like you know um like naturally in in big gatherings like there there might be like gender segregation like that's you know so like just stuff like that um or like drink no drinking no eating pork that's just embedded in our in our daily life um so by cracking down on like these small things like that's china's attempt of really wiping trying to wipe out the very essence of our identity Right. Um, and they know. And it's, it's also, you know, something I was thinking is like it also is a, a sign when China sees like religion as a threat or, or someone's identity or culture as a threat. That is a sign of its own insecurity. Like yeah. like it's an insecure totalitarian state. Right. When they mm-hmm. when it's come to the point where you you find it a threat that someone is saying assalamu alaikum or someone's speaking their own mother tongue. Like what does that say about the oppressor? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I imagine um kind of going back to your statement earlier about, you know, uh, 
people come up to you and they're trying to get, guess what you are, <laughs> right? What your ethnicity is. Yeah. Um, and then they get the uh, Uyghur uh, 101 history, right? Introduction. Uh, on the college campus, how have you seen that awareness or how have you seen, uh, what, what's been the impact of your presence on, uh, in, in, can we give a shout out to university? Yeah, Duke. <laughs> Duke basketball. <laughs> Zion. Yeah, can't wait to see him. Okay. Uh, but, um, but, but what has been the impact? Have you seen levels of awareness um, uh, raise? Okay, well, then within my particular campus, um, I would say that, so coming in as a freshman, like I, I remember just, like I would say my ethnicity to introduce myself to whoever, you know, whether it be my roommate, whether it be my like my fellow Muslim community, the MSA, or just my classmates. And honestly, people had no idea. Like, I don't know of anyone at the time. I think there was like one or two people who I know who like had heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like saying, oh, like there were a couple of friends who had like added me on Facebook before they had met me, right? But then they would see my posts and that was their first exposure to the issue or to even hearing about our ethnicity. So when I came on campus, um, people started to see know me as like, like they would kind of not make fun of, but it was it would be a joke. Like Aiden's like basically her introduction when she introduces herself is, "Hi, my name is Aiden. Like I'm in Uyghur, but my family's from East Turkestan, which is a nation under the occupation of China." That was literally like my go-to phrase because mm. I was because like I knew first of all no one would know who Uyghur is whenever I say it, and then I would say East Turkestan, no one would know who that what that is. So then I would have to say it's an, a nation under the occupation of China. And then sometimes I'd maybe add a couple more sentences being like, we're just currently undergoing a genocide or something like that, you know? But, you know, and so I realized that a lot of the awareness, um, well, based off of what my friends or other people have told me, is like, before we met you, we had no idea. And this is much like I've, we've uh, been more aware of the issue because of you constantly talking about it and you trying to make this an issue. So um, even on Duke, uh, just recently in late January, we... I was president of the MSA this past year, and oh, so I was like, sure. I'm going to use this time to use this, you know, chance to use Duke's resources and their money to organize this event to raise awareness and break Duke's silence on this issue because Duke hasn't like really done a lot of like any event during my time at Duke to raise an issue of this plight. And Duke has a very strong relation with China because they actually have a campus operating in China called the Duke Kunshan University, right? And wow. this was a, re- a new university that I believe was built in 2013. So I was like, okay, well, this makes sense as to why Duke is, you know, probably not saying anything. And they have a huge, you know, uh, international Chinese student population at Duke as well. Um, so it would be, and I'm, I'm the, also the only Uyghur on campus that I know of. Like I haven't met a single Uyghur on campus, both in undergrad school and graduate schools. So I was like, okay, I'm, a, I'm like, right now I'm like alone in this in this cause in the sense that like I don't have anyone else to work with if I want to make this an issue so I was like before I graduate I really need to make sure that we have at least one event that really breaks the silence and and ruffles some feathers because I was so tired of seeing just going about campus and just seeing like like we would have all these events going on on campus like uh, most people who are if someone's listening to this and you're at university or you've gone to you know how universities constantly have talks and and I was just like, why isn't anyone talking about this genocide? Like, And especially with the construction of the camps, I was like, why isn't anyone talking about like concentration camps in the 21st century? Like literally there are freaking, there are like people dying, like, and, 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 and it's, it's being done by such a, like a, this huge power and no one's saying anything about it. Mm-hmm. And Duke has this relation with China. Like what is going on here? And this, I'm like, if another Holocaust happens and like, 
we look back 10 years from now and we're like writing about the genocide of the Uyghurs in concentration camps i'm like yeah it's because we're it's all our, it's all on us we, it's because we did nothing mm-hmm. like we, you people are gonna be looking back and be like wow i was at this university who had such strong ties with this you know with this fascist state and we still chose not to do anything or we we were silent right mm-hmm. so um alhamdulillah we created this event and we it would it was a huge turnout um people were literally sitting on the floors i would say it was around over 200 people um and we invited mehrul tursun the concentration camp survivor mm-hmm. my dad also came he's been he's also kind of been one of the forefront leaders of like the independence movement so he was considered seen as a more like quote-unquote radical mm-hmm. uh voices and then he is the prime minister prime minister in exile yes of, of the eastern government. government in exile yes okay um and then we had one academic from the university of washington darren byler but i wanted this event to be talking more about Uyghur voices because a lot of these events on universities i realize it's just like yes they invite scholars but none of them are Uyghur, right it's like and it's just like a little bit it's good but it's also like okay where are the Uyghur voices they keep saying they 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 like it's an you know it's a and i'm just like there are Uyghur people here that could be giving their stories sharing their narrative right um you know are they being pushed to the are they being pushed to the back or academics or 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 like those voices yeah i wouldn't say they're necessarily being pushed back but there's just like when it comes to like prioritizing who to invite for like college events it's always like the people with the phds and uh, and like obviously rightfully so like it makes sense right you need especially if you're going to speak in an academic setting you want people who come from an academic background to be talking to students or talking to right. professors versus like a radical or not i don't want to say radical i'm sorry but people who deem these activists as radical speaking out of campus and trying to rally people to support the cause those are two completely different things but i was like people need to hear Uyghur voices because everyone keeps saying like and also uh, not to you know put down any work of like non-Uyghur activists or i mean non-Uyghur scholars or whatever but sometimes i always feel like there are certain narratives that are not being mentioned or like there i i was i've sat down in multiple talks mm-hmm. um, or i've watched them online have you know other scholars um who've spoken spoken on the issue and mashallah they they, they do ground their their talks and evidence and their research and have done great work but sometimes i feel like there are certain things that i wish were, were more emphasized for example the fact that we're in occupied territory like touching more on like the colonial history because it's usually just mentioned like I would say very briefly but um or if are calling us an ethnic minority which obviously but like technically if you want to say okay China is technically part of China now mm-hmm. then you technically we're an ethnic minority but like if you are giving it from the, the voice of an Uyghur we will openly reject and be like don't call us that or we would say don't call don't say Xinjiang but all these these scholars have to say Xinjiang because that's like one of the rules in academia you can't just like start you know uh, using statements that give off political state political so use words that give off political statements so they would always always call it Xinjiang they would never really call it East Turkestan I don't want to and I don't want to generalize obviously I know I do know of some scholars who interchange the two names to give more voice and credit to that the East Turkestan name for example um, or there's just yeah there's just a couple of, and then I realized like people are more inclined to listen to i think it's more powerful and people hear like stories right so if someone says my mom and my dad is in a concentration camp i have not heard their voice for two years now and i live in everyday like psychological trauma and and this fear that my mom and dad are like basically dead like that's a completely different you know uh feeling that you get versus like some like professor who just comes and just like oh yeah the uyghurs are like uh you know people from northwest china and they're 
they're an ethnic minority being rounded up into re-education camps. I'm like, yes, that, that's, you know, that's important. Right, the but question, just, The question has to be asked, what is the purpose of the presentation? Exactly. Uh, you know, somebody's getting right. up and they're talking about what's going on, but they're talking about it from, um, from a standpoint of basically just giving information, mm-hmm. but not really giving that information with the purpose of... Um, and insight might not be the right, the best word, but mm-hmm. at least prodding people to action. Exactly. That's. Right? I think that would be the main difference. And um, so, like, yeah, exactly. So I, I would say a lot of academics won't be. Won't, they won't have. A, let's say they have a presentation. They won't have a slide saying, "Okay, what can you do to help?" Right? Because it's not an activist presentation. It's more of like, "Here's information as an academic, as a scholar, what I'm going to present to you." Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to. And I, I've talked to a lot of these scholars. They, like a lot of them. Like they can't openly call themselves an activist, even though a lot of their work has shifted towards that direction, where they're now using their platforms as a way to raise awareness. Like that's a form of activism, for example, or they're, you know, supporting like Uyghur activists. Those are all low-key forms of activism, but they're not. They can't call themselves activists because they have to maintain their profession. And by calling themselves activists, they could also lose their credibility because activists, unfortunately, you know, are seen as people who quote unquote exaggerate things or are like or only like to see talk about the one side, whereas academics or journalists people in those fields have to you know be more quote-unquote objective or uh just kind of pull themselves out of the thing. that's that, that that's a nice joke um <laughs> the whole idea of not having any bias but personally my favorite my favorite scholars are scholar activists mm-hmm. um because yeah. you know what is the point of of the research uh of, of giving the information if not to allow people to make better decisions um but anyway, I get what you're yeah. saying 100%. Yeah, and so also another thing that I've, I've realized is a predicament that a lot of these uh, these academics or scholars face is, well, especially when it comes to China, is speaking up against uh, about this issue in the first place. Because if they speak up, they are probably subject to not being able to go to China again, especially if their career is, you know, if, if their research is based in China, like a lot of, they, they rely on trying to go back to the region and doing more research. Mm-hmm. So if they're not able to go, it's like, what are they going to do then, right? So... I know, you know, there. this is a big predicament that they face is like, should I speak up? Should I say anything? And then, you know, obviously our response is like, well, if you are silent, then you are, you know, somewhat complicit in this genocide. But if all academics were to really unite and, and speak up against this and be like, yo, this is like, we can't be complicit in this as a pe- just just so we can keep our job per se. This is, there's a moral issue here that and a moral and ethical issue here that's that's up that's at stake here mm-hmm. um and so there are a lot of people who still don't you know like for example i there was a, an event at duke where we had one of uh, a china scholar who who talked about china i'm using islam in china so in general islam in china mm-hmm. and we i was also on the panel and i talked about the Uyghur issue but it was being recorded and then we were asked can we can we broadcast this live broadcast this to duke kunchen university and the academic said no, like, because he was, it's just too risky. And it's just, so it's just like, what is, you know, what is the line that you draw here? And um, I understand for people who, who have to, you know, like, who feel the need to not broadcast themselves. But like, I feel like with silence, like the whole reason why there, there are so many Uyghurs, even Uyghurs, like even at the presentation on, uh, even at the dinner on Saturday, mm-hmm. I, I met some Uyghur people, like one lady was telling me, like I was contemplating for multiple days on whether or not I should go to this because I was so scared. Like I was afraid that if I was, my face was showed up, shown up on social media, my family would face um, like 
repercussions, yeah. right? And then finally, her husband said, what do you have to be afraid of? At the end of the day, you should fear Allah, not fear people or fear government, right? And she was like, okay, I'm going to come. But like, even Uyghurs were deciding whether or not to go to a dinner, you know? And, and I was just like that fear has just pervaded so many people that to the point where like they just they can't even show up to protest they can't even like speak up and say one of my family members is missing or sent to a camp mm -hmm. like you know and it's, it's come to that point but yeah then we saw and then we also see clear evidence of the way china tries to silence activists so we had recently a couple um Uyghurs who have their family members in camps and they spoke they met up with uh um secretary pompeo to talk about uh, you know what's happening um, to their family members, and a couple of days later, um, they got the news that like their aunt, like one guy, his aunt and his uncle got sentenced to sixty-seven years of prison because of because of simply meeting with the U.S. government, basically. Well, what we will have to do is to continue to look at not just the silence, uh, core silence of uh, of individuals of academics, but also how the uh, the presence of Chinese, uh, uh, China's economy or its, um, its presence in America's economy mm -hmm. has also impacted um, the silence that, that we see. Because I just read an article recently, it was talking about, matter of fact, this is probably about two years ago, mm -hmm. and it talks about the number of American companies that are now under Chinese ownership. Yeah. And some are legitimate, but there are many that are state-owned, right. uh, and that's also having an impact on how people respond to um, uh, to the to this crisis in particular, you know, and offering any kind of criticism towards China. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. So China is buying people's silence. Um, yeah, and and even Muslim Muslim majority countries up till this point, I would say the only Muslim majority country on a government level that has spoken up is Turkey, and that only happened a couple months ago. But even until that point, mm -hmm. like no one has spoken up. Even like the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, mm -hmm. like when asked, he was asked multiple times. Um, well, you know, he was he was basically saying that the issue of the Uyghurs is an internal affair. I don't know much about it. He's like, I don't know much about the issue. I can't really speak on it. It was just, you know, like these these are the excuses that are being made. Mm. Um, Aiden, I appreciate you taking the time to come through. Tell Thank folks you. where they can uh, keep up with you on social media. Uh, yeah. So. Um, you guys can so i my facebook and twitter is used for raising awareness about this cause so if you follow me on twitter my twitter is aiden anwar underscore uh that's a y d i n a n w a r underscore and then my facebook is just my first and last name you can just follow me on facebook um yeah so that's and it's the same spelling a y d i n last name is a n w a r okay and also go to uh save uh Uyghur I'm working on my pronunciation. Make sure I get it right. <laughs> save uh, Uyghur.org. Go there, save uh, Uyghur.org, uh, and you can get information about um, just about what, what we've been talking about, and uh, and make yourself active. Make yourself active. Yes. So thank you once thank again. Thank you so much. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM.